0: Welcome back. Today, we're talking about the mentality of a millionaire real estate investor. This could by far be one of the most important lectures yet. And I'm really excited to share this content with you because you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, Kevin, where's my data? I want more spreadsheets. I want more analysis. Don't worry, all of that's coming. But know this, that if you don't watch and understand and internalize this lecture here, And of course, the other things that we've already talked about. None of the other stuff will matter because you either won't use it or you'll be too depressed to know what to do with it. This lecture will help you prevent that failure and ensure that you have the best chances of success. Here we go. First, if you have not yet checked the curriculum, especially the last lectures, to see if there were any quizzes added, you better go back and find out where two quizzes are waiting for you. Make sure you answer those two questions. Internalize what those answers mean and ask yourself, do you really believe the answer? You need to challenge your thoughts first, and then this is going to make sense, because that's just a precursor to what we're about to talk about. You'll be asking yourself, do you have the attitude that's being described in those questions? Are you falling victim to the pitfalls? Did you get the question wrong? Why did you get it wrong? This is very specific reason the answer is what it is. So, If you want, pause here, go answer those quizzes, and then we'll keep going. You could have all the knowledge in the world, but if you fall victim to these three toxic subjects that are perpetuated by our society, our culture, and social media, then you probably will fail. Number one, passive income is easy. Folks, YouTubers make passive income look easy because most people misunderstand the concept of passive income. People say, well, if I make videos on YouTube and then I get paid residually over time, that's passive income. No, it's not. It's not passive because that is the built-in cost. That is the built-in payment you are receiving for having made that video initially. You're just getting your payment over time. You had to put in a lot of work and effort to get that passive income. To me, what passive income is, is raising the rents on a property or my property manager raising the rents. And now I literally did nothing. I did not project that I guaranteed could raise the rents. It's not like I was expecting rents in the market to appreciate by a certain percentage. Instead, I essentially got a bonus of passive income. I got an increase in rents and if I have 10 units and I raise each of them 50 bucks, I got 500 extra dollars of passive money. I literally did nothing extra for that extra $500, that's passive income to me. But folks, the big, the big misconception that goes along with it is that it's easy, is that you can do anything and very quickly start accruing passive income. But no, see in the example I just gave you, that requires having 10 units first. Now, of course, those are going to produce income for you. But to me, the real passive part starts Not after you acquire them and get it all set up. That's just your reimbursement for going through that. The passive income portion comes over time as the market does its thing. Therefore, for anybody saying that here's a guide for passive income over the next year, there are only two ways people pitch this. One, you work for it and then it's not passive income. Or two, you liquidate all of your assets And then you buy something boring like stocks and bonds. No offense to people who buy stocks and bonds. I buy stocks. Don't don't worry about it. And then you take the residual income from that. So internalize. Passive income is not a now thing. Passive income is the end goal, the end game of this course. But I'm not going to deceive you into making you think that at the end of this course, you're going to have passive income day one. You're going to learn how on the side, as your most favorite side hustle ever, you're going to learn how to invest in real estate so that while you do whatever other hustles it is you do, that passive income will start showing up. But not today, not tomorrow, in the long run. If you internalize that, you will be much, much more likely to succeed because you won't fall victim to number two and three. Number two, 10X now. I don't mean to make a reference to Grant Cardone. But no matter what industry we look at, it is exciting to say, start big. I think that is a huge fallacy because here's what starting big does. If you've never started before, it creates more anxiety and leads to the likelihood that you'll never actually start. If you do start big, you'll get overwhelmed. You'll get depressed. You'll find, wow, this isn't a side hustle anymore. This isn't a hobby. This isn't enjoyable anymore. This is a job. It's a new job to start big. Don't start big. Just start. Start with a small to middle-priced something. We'll obviously get to exactly how to start and the paths for making money and the paths for analyzing deals and making sure that you're getting the best value, the best bang for your buck. But you have to start and internalize that you don't have to start huge. People come to me and go, hey, I just inherited $2 million. I wanna buy 10 units right now. Go hold your horses. Have you ever had a tenant before? Have you ever owned real estate before? These are some prerequisites that have to be asked because the last thing you wanna do is think about starting big. The anxiety will stop you from doing it. If you get in, you'll probably get overwhelmed and then you'll compare yourself to other people via the toxicity of relativity that is all too common in our society today. And you will always say to yourself, wow, I'm a loser. I'm not as good as that other person. And that's another concept that you need to eliminate from your mentality. If you truly want to be or have the mentality of a millionaire real estate investor, stop comparing yourself to other real estate investors Write goals down for yourself, starting with something, say, half the price of whatever the median price is in your area. If the median price is $250,000, make it a goal to start with something that's $125,000. If you already have $5 million of real estate and you want to 10x and you're thinking about 50 mil, make it a goal to find that next $2.5 million first, because a goal without a roadmap is worthless. I'm not saying don't have the ultimate goal, the ultimate 10X goal, but you need to have the right stepping stones to get there. Otherwise you'll never get there. And you'll continue to do what almost every single college student person in their thirties, forties does today. And they look at their neighbors. They say, that person has a nicer car. That person has more real estate. That person has a greater net worth than me. That person's happier than me, but are they really? And wait a minute, does that even matter? Or should you be asking yourself, What is it that you hold yourself accountable to? How do you measure your happiness? Figure that out. Is it your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your children? Is it your family? Is it knowing that when you take all of the principles from this course and you have this long-term happiness mentality, you'll be much, much more equipped to follow the path of the millionaire real estate investor and you will succeed, you will make it. If you do it, you persevere and you stay the course for the long term. So before we get into the next part of this lecture, let's do a quick little recap there. Have you written down any of your goals this year? Don't tell me you wrote them down on your phone and some notepad that you're never going to look at. Write them down, put them on your wall, above your computer, a little notepad, who cares? One of the first things I did in real estate was print the logo, 300, from the movie, 300, and paste it to my wall and made it nice so that every day I went to that computer, I looked and saw, that's the course I'm on. I'm getting closer to that goal. I don't care if somebody wins the lottery around me. Good for them. I know I'm on my course to get to my goal in the long run, and I'm going to make it there. Because remember, everything is done one step at a time. And as long as you're moving closer and closer to it, you'll get there. So did you write down your goals? Did you make a routine, which was one of the first things we mentioned? Did you actually stop this video and go back and take the quiz questions? Or did you look to see what the latest updates are from Kevin, whether it's Instagram or YouTube or the course emails? See, to really succeed and become the millionaire real estate investor, you need to have a strong foundation. Rewatch this until you could say, Check, 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 check. I'm good. So who is the millionaire or billionaire real estate investor? They're not people who measure their own success by what people around them are doing. They measure their own success against their goals. The millionaire or billionaire investor thinks long-term, and ultimately, they start. Step one is always start. Step two is keeping in mind the long-term vision. So be great out there. Check these things off the list. Make sure you really internalize this, because we're about to get into the rough and tumble finance and spreadsheets and deal analysis and, and the roadmaps to wealth, but I gotta know I've got people with the right mentality on this boat so that you can really take away the best lessons. Thanks for watching. So you want to quit your job to pursue an investing career in real estate or maybe even become a real estate agent? Well, make sure you watch this video to gain a little bit of perspective as to how you might consider formulating that mindset of yours. Here's the thing. The reason you likely don't like your job is because you don't feel fulfilled by it anymore. The bottom line is, when we see a job that looks like it's more fun or more entertaining, we all naturally compare ourselves to that job and think, wow, I need to quit and do something meaningful with my life when in reality, as soon as you switch, you end up feeling exactly the same way after that sort of honeymoon period is over. The same could be said about video games. Wow, I just got destroyed by this person. I better switch, re-roll, and do what they're doing. And ultimately, it all comes down to you are what you make of the hand you're dealt, not the hands of others that you perceive you might be competing against. In other words, stick with what you've got going on. And here's exactly why. Two main reasons. Number one, real estate investing is not limited by the amount of time that you put in. In fact, you could be doing whatever you want and be a real estate investor at the same time. You could be a doctor. You could be working at Jamba Juice like I did. You could be in outer space or you could be on vacation and you could still be a real estate investor. The reason is you're not limited by your actual dedicated time to do real estate. Yeah, setting up real estate does take some time, but on a day-to-day basis, the amount of time that actually goes into real estate investing is relatively small. That's why I call real estate investing a side hustle. Instead, rather than being limited by the time you can dedicate to real estate investing, real estate investing is limited by money. And so, if you quit your job to create a career of real estate investing, you're really just trying to create another job that produces enough income so that you can actually survive and then invest the excess. So, bottom line is if you don't have any money, you're not investing in real estate. And for people that are making 70, 80, 100, 200, $300,000, a million dollars a year, it doesn't matter how much you're making. What matters is, what's that excess you're putting aside so that you can eventually, if you haven't yet started buying real estate, buy real estate. Or if you are already investing in real estate, how can you set yourself up to buy more real estate? So as a quick little recap, the two things there are, one, real estate is not limited by your time because real estate happens relatively on the sidelines. So number one is, real estate should be your side hustle. And number two, real estate is limited by the access to capital that you have. People in social media like to bag on the nine to five, that you should quit working the nine to five, be self-employed and make your own schedule. Well, first of all, I envy the people who have a nine to five because they get to push an off button, clock out. I don't get to do that. I envy the nine to five. So if you work at the nine to five or you're self-employed, Both of this applies to you. Whatever it is you're doing, wherever you're making money, before you should really consider quitting whatever you're doing, ask yourself, if you can get a 25% increase in pay doing what you're doing over the next three years, what are the odds that letting some kind of side hustle you have become your primary source of income by quitting your first job? That your now secondary or tertiary side hustle job will make more money than whatever the amount of money is you're making now, plus 25%. Ask yourself that first. Obviously, if you're in college or you're a student or you're like I was when I was 16 making $7.50 working at Hollister and then working at Jamba Juice, yeah, then the important thing for me to consider is not quitting that job, but taking those savings and trying to get a better job. So at the same time, I moved from Hollister to go make more money at Jamba Juice, then to go into the restaurant industry to make more money there. I was also starting my savings and starting my education process in real estate. So a really good takeaway is, real estate investing is not mutually exclusive. You don't have to quit whatever else it is you're doing to invest in real estate. In fact, whatever else it is you're doing You can get major pleasure out of continually doing that by planning your real estate investments. See, now all of a sudden, you give yourself fulfillment back. You say, the reason I'm a cop working 50 hours a week is because all that extra overtime I'm putting into my investments so I can build up my portfolio of FU money, as they say, and build that real estate investment portfolio. Now, you have a new sense of purpose in your job, and all of a sudden, quitting your job becomes a whole lot less interesting. Because watch this, and we'll talk about this more in detail, but watch this. If you create a spreadsheet today, and you set a budget for yourself, And then you look at what your income is, which better be more than what your budget is. And then you look at, okay, I can invest this every single month, uh, put it aside, and then invest it. Extrapolate this over the next 20 years. How many properties can you buy by moving, say, three, four, five times within those 20 years if you only had to put down 3%, 5%, 10%, 20%? What do you want to put down? And then now you're moving amongst these properties, and then you're going to rent them out. That method obviously isn't for everybody. So maybe you ask yourself, how much money can I set aside? And how many units can I buy with that? Which don't be misled. We're going to be talking a lot about units and income property. If you follow my Instagram, you'll see I talk about units and income property a lot. See, let me give you a different perspective. Let's paint this picture, so to speak. If you're on a treadmill in the gym, and you set that treadmill to run an eight-minute mile, the odds are... Most of you will run an eight-minute mile. But if you go on a jog, put headphones in, dress up, go outside, put some sunscreen on, get that hat ready, everything is prepped, you had a little bit of coffee before just to give you a little boost, if you're not a really proficient runner, you'll probably run a nine or nine-and-a-half-minute mile. That's because when you have a treadmill under your feet, you tend to go faster because you have to. When you have a job and you create your own treadmill, your own investing treadmill, and you're making the money because that's the side effect of working at the job, you're moving on a treadmill because the side effect of being on a treadmill that is on is moving, you get to now invest that extra money. So why would you quit that? Don't turn that treadmill off. If anything, turn the speed up on that thing. Almost everybody on social that quits their main job to follow their passion, so to speak, of whatever their secondary or tertiary job preference side hustle is, makes so much more money on their side hustle than they really could ever make from their primary job that it doesn't make sense to keep the primary job anymore. But in some sense, that's a little bit like winning the lottery. And keep in mind, as with most things on social or in Hollywood, what goes up can come down just this fast. So the lifespan of people that we follow on, on social does not last forever. So don't compare yourself. We talked about this in the last one. Relativity is toxic. Now, let's compare this because this comes up a lot. Hey, Kevin, you invest in real estate. You love investing in real estate and that's why you're sharing this knowledge. Maybe I too should become a real estate agent or real estate broker like Kevin is. I usually say no to that because if your goal is, I want to invest in real estate, becoming a real estate agent or broker, maybe under the allure of saving a little bit of commission, just shoots yourself in the foot. You're giving away, and we're gonna talk much more about this, you're giving away the benefits of having an advocate and a deal hunter help you make money. Why would you give that away? Never grind that person, thank that person. Now, if you desire to get into real estate sales because you want to help people invest in real estate, you want to sell real estate, you want to be a salesperson, that's fine. Get into real estate. But if your only motivation to get a real estate license is to save a commission on the deal that you're doing yourself, which again is limited by the amount of money you have, which realistically means if you're doing a deal every two years, good for you. You are tenfold above the rest of society. Most people are happy if they can buy one house and pay that thing off and call it a day. Then the next level of population is happy if they could say they have A rental property somewhere. But that's not our goal here. Our goal in this course is a portfolio of rental properties. Because with a portfolio of properties, your doors open up. You could sell them all and go invest in a REIT, invest in a capital fund. You can do whatever you want. Or you just sit on the cash in the future. You can't do that with just two properties. So in summation, this is going to be one of the last videos talking about mindset and that preparedness that you should have before we actually get into the real estate investing content. Hopefully you find this as important as I have found it to be necessary to understand, to succeed not only in real estate investing, but a lot of this applies to life in general. We blame others too much for the circumstances that happen to us. When ultimately, no matter how bad things are that happen to any of us, we have to take responsibility for them and make the best with the hands we're dealt. So go to your boss and get a pay raise, but don't quit yet. And only become a real estate agent if you really want to help people. In the meantime, keep doing what you're doing, make more money with what you're doing, dump your excess into real estate, don't spend money on frivolous things like expensive furniture or patio covers or crazy things that ultimately don't increase your investment value in anything. Note, we'll be talking a whole lot more about that too. And if you can internalize these aspects, you'll be at the top 1%, at least the top mental 1% of humanity before everybody else. Thanks for watching. So one day I had a final walkthrough with an investor who just purchased a property. Final walkthrough, which we'll obviously talk about later in the course, is sort of your last visit to the property before the deal is officially yours. You usually want to do that just to check to see if the house is flooded, which wood floors are famous for flooding after people move out their refrigerator and the stupid little water set line starts leaking. Whew creates disasters in escrows. Good to look for this at the end and in the inspections. Anyway, so the seller in this one case, this just happened to me about two weeks ago. The seller in this one case was supposed to repair some water damage to the backside of the toilet. It's just the wax ring had gone out and damaged a little bit of the baseboard. It just had some of that little like brown discoloration you would expect to see. Not like any kind of black mildew or crazy deterioration. It's just kind of like somebody wiped it up and it left a little bit of a ring pretty typical. Anyway, the seller said they were going to fix that. Well, during our walkthrough, I actually noticed that they had not fixed it. So obviously being the agent that I am, I'm like, oh man, uh, you know, they forgot to do this, whether the agent forgot or the seller forgot, uh, well, whatever. But I told my client, I'll see to it that it gets taken care of. And the client starts screaming, the seller was supposed to do this, this is ridiculous, I can't believe they didn't do this. I'm like, it's all right, Like, it's a $250 job, we're gonna get it taken care of, don't worry about it. I didn't say it's just a $250 job because I didn't wanna minimize her emotions, obviously at that point, but I did say, don't worry, we're gonna get it taken care of. And the whole rest of the walkthrough she was venting they probably didn't fix the floor because there's mold under there and they didn't want to reveal the mold and then have to get a mold company out there i'm extremely pissed off i'm gonna sue them after this transaction's done so the story might sound pretty stressful but i'm trying to convey a basic message here don't be a prick i get so many people as do many great successful investing agents Calling me, emailing me, texting me, saying, hey, I want to invest in your market, send me deals, I got cash, I want to buy, I'm ready to go. And really, it's the nicest of the bunch that I want to work with that I pick up the phone and call to give them a deal. So, later we're going to talk about finding an agent and how to work with an agent, but I I may as well just give you a little bit of a preface right now. If your agent doesn't like you because you treat the agent like they're your little bee, well don't expect them to give the deals to you first. For some reason, people feel elevated when they're a real estate investor. They feel like everyone should just bow down to them and that everybody around them owes them something. The handyman, the painters, oh, just the heater guy. They all owe you something. It don't work like that. People don't give because you demand it or you're owed it. That makes for bitter people. People give because Maybe you're a nice human being. People give because it makes them feel good. People want to work with other happy and successful people. Unfortunately, there are a lot of grouches and ego-filled investors out there, and it is absolutely the worst mindset to have for investing. I guarantee you, if you call me and you're an a-hole, I will not work with you. Now not all agents are going to say that because if you watch my YouTube channel you'll know that when I was a newer agent I took on everybody and I just tried to please anybody I could. I didn't care what I had to do to make it happen. Unfortunately that's very different now for people. Let me give you a very real and recent example. Somebody called me last week and said, hey, I'm an investor, I'm a cash buyer, I want to buy some deals. This was after they started off making some sarcastic remarks about uh, my YouTube channel and kind of being a little bit degrading. And I already thought, uh, like this isn't a good start. But you know what? I give people the benefit of the doubt. I told him the same thing I tell him in all my calls. I'll put you on my list of investors. And when a deal comes up and it's available, I'll call you. So what that means is if I see a hot deal come up, I pick up the phone, I call the most qualified buyers first, and I go down the list. If you're on the list, great. There are a lot of great deals I see that I can't sell to people because I don't have that long of a list of really great investor clients. It just is what it is because a lot of people aren't serious or they're unrealistic with the expectations they have for a deal, which we'll talk about what kind of expectations you should have and how to look for a deal and how to know if an agent is being trustworthy to you, all, all, all this kind of stuff we're, we're going to talk about. I'm just venting a little bit, but also giving you perspective in this mindset section, which is extremely important. Because look, nine out of 10 in real estate investors out there are too mean to people and they would get further if they were nicer. So, anyway, I told him the same thing. I'll call you when there's a deal. Well, he sent me an email at midnight today, this morning. It says uh, 19 a.m., or so 19 minutes after midnight. I was wrong about you, Kevin. Blah, 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 blah. I reached out to you a week ago. What did I get in return? No response and waited a week to see if you would follow up. Very disappointing and a big letdown. Certainly not what I was expecting. I'm a cash investor ready to buy. And then it keeps going on. And sorry, I'm reading that a little bit bitterly because I'm bitter when I get emails like that. I set a very clear expectation. I will call you when a deal comes up. I can't just call you to say, what's up, man? How you doing? You want to go fishing? Like, that doesn't work. This is a business. I will call you when there's a deal. That is the expectation I set. That's the way business works. If I called my investors all the time just to go, hey, I just wanted to give you an update. I'm um, looking for you, but I don't have any deals. They would go, Kevin, don't call me unless you have a deal. I'm busy trying to make money so I can invest in real estate. So I get that. Like I, I don't do that. Look, I I replied the way I usually do. I apologized, I'm sincere in my apology, whatever. Maybe I didn't convey it very clearly in the phone call uh, that I would call him when there was a deal. But guess what? Even somebody like that who's like, oh, okay, I misunderstood or whatever. Do I really want to do a deal with them? Escrows, real estate is hard. It's stressful. And if you're freaking out because I'm a cash investor and you didn't call me to tell me there were no deals, i'm just gonna leave it there all right let's go into some uh, mindset takeaways here all right look i try to understand everybody i work with i want to know why the painter is having a hard day why the roofer is frustrated see i think that empathy is what connects us to other people being mean disconnects us from people and because i've forged these relationships with so many contractors i've and, and, and have empathized with them and have talked to them and shared my ups and downs and they've shared their ups and downs When they give me a quote, I don't tell them or call them and go, Hey, can you knock some money off the price? You know, I give you a lot of business. I need a better deal. I expect that they're already giving me the best deal. Because if I find out they're not and they're screwing me, I won't use them anymore. But guess what? I don't even have to think like that because I know they're giving me the best deal. I've already checked. And guess who they call when they have a good deal? Me. That's exactly what happened, and something very important you could take away from this lesson. We had a short sale renovation. It was a 2003 house without air conditioning. The, the forced air unit, the duct system, everything was fine. There was no work for my heater guy in that house. He knew that. He I he told him, like, hey, we're in a short sale. Oh, it's a headache, this, that, or whatever. But, I, you know, he did know I was in a short sale working on this next investment. He called me while we were in the renovation phase and said, hey, Kevin, so we just installed an air conditioning unit in Santa Barbara, but it's too large. The owner doesn't like it. He refused the order. Now it's an open box and we can't install it anywhere else. We'll give it to you for our cost. It was literally installed right out of the box. That's it. And, and we would gladly give it to you cost just because we're going to lose money on it otherwise. So what would have ordinarily been a seven to $8,000 air conditioning upgrade on a 2,300 square foot house for me cost me $2,900. I'm like, where do I sign? Here's your money. Great deal. Thanks for thinking of me. Do you think after that phone call, the correct thing would have been to say, ah, man, you know, $2,900, you know, that just wasn't in my budget. You know, can you do it for 25? He would have gone, ah, let me see what I could do, Kevin hang up, call the next guy on the list. Hey man, got a great deal, 2,900 bucks. You in? All right, deal, we'll go install it tomorrow. Oh, sorry, Kevin, we sold it to somebody else. If you don't know how the game works, then don't even go on to the rest of the course. Look, I know some of you all are anxious. It's like, Kevin, I want to know about cap rates. I want to know about numbers. Show me the money. You can't do that stuff if you don't know this yet. <laughs> so, so anyway, I'm a little excited in this video, primarily because stuff like that just really upsets me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I get through it, whatever. But hopefully uh, you could learn from this experience. Never talk anybody down. Don't be that ego, I'm an investor person. Find your circle, don't grind them. We're going to talk so much more about your circle in detail. And look... Don't be that person that has a bad day often. Be that person. It's okay to have that occasional bad day, but if you just have bad days all the time, people don't want to work with you. Good luck and thanks for watching what's up everybody this is so exciting this is the last lecture before we go into finances i am stoked to get into finances but this is so important that i've even made a download for you a manual for you so to speak but let's talk a little bit about it right here in the last lecture you learned that having an ego sucks Well, with modern communication, text messages, and email, people can often assume that you have a bad attitude or an ego because you were never taught, and I'm not faulting you for it, but you were never taught how to communicate properly in email or text. And you're thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, is this seriously what he's going to talk about? I'm just going to click out. Well, fine then go ahead and click out right now. But honestly, you're gonna miss out on something that could end up getting you a deal. Rule number one. Whatever you do, you need to act in a way that reduces anxiety in those around you. In fact, I highly encourage you to be a no pressure investor. The reason I say no pressure is not to say no negotiating, otherwise I would have said no negotiating. What I mean is pressure leads to anxiety. People are stressed enough in today's society. Everybody is way too busy and the last thing people want in life is an email or a text message from you that induces anxiety in their life. And you might legitimately be thinking to yourself, well, I'm just gonna send a quick little check in. Any updates? Can you please send me this? Just those two examples right there, gave me chest pain because these are anxiety inducing statements and I'm going to show you exactly what I mean and the alternatives agents that like working with you will bring you deals that carries over to escrow lenders everything contractors you name it if people like you they'll go out of their way to help you don't let messages and email ruin it for you let's give you some examples before we go into the second hard and fast rule there are three very important rules here we just touched on on the first one, anxiety. And before we get into rule two and three, let me give you some examples of what not to do and what to do. We did just touch on two things, not what not to do, and here are the alternatives for that. If you're looking for an update, put yourself in the other person's shoes. They might have the update ready for you, but maybe just haven't gotten around to letting you know what that update is because they're busy, or they legitimately don't have an update. Either way, your goal by sending a correspondence with the phrase, any updates, is to find out if there is any news and sort of prod the person. The problem with this statement is, you induce guilt in that person for not giving you the update sooner so what do most people do even if they already have the answer they will reply back and say nope nothing yet and then they'll let you sit ice cold for another hour and then send you the update as if it just came in instead to prevent that sensation of guilt in other people always always keep in mind rule number one no pressure statements The best way to offer no pressure statements in texts and emails is not only to reply quickly when you're spoken to, but also to respond in such a way that you are volunteering yourself to help. Even though you're not actually expecting people to call on you for help, you should be ready and willing to help. Here's what I mean by that. If I wanted to send a message, any updates to my agent or my accountant or my contractor, I might word it in such a way to say, hey, wanted to just check in to see if you needed anything from me. Do you want me to make any phone calls, grab any materials? Do you need any updated bits of information? Is anything holding you up? Or is there anything I can do to make myself available to help you? Now, obviously, you can condense that. You don't have to say that long paragraph. But taking that extra step to put in some more effort into the question, now lets the other person know, oh, Kevin just wants to help me. That's why he's reaching out. Kevin wants to make my life easier. Gosh, I... I like working with Kevin. Hey Kevin, oh my gosh, it's it's great that you reached out. I actually just got this update, blah, 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 blah. It's all in the pattern, Just like other statements like, I need this form right now. Or could you please send me this right now? Could just as easily be rephrased to, hey, is there any chance you could send me this document that I need? The IRS is asking for it. My CPA is asking for it. So and so needs it. Or, whatever the reason is, note always put the reason second. Request first, reason second. You don't want to have this like long message and then and, and people are trying to decipher what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Because when people open up an email, they have anxiety. It's like, okay, I have the anxiety to deal with this email. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? The worst emails are the ones that have this long introduction and are like, hey, hope the kids are good. Hope you had fun at the wedding. Hope your life is good. Hey, you want to go fishing sometime? I owe you a beer. Don't forget to let me give you this back. Blah, 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 blah. By the way, hey, I need this document. Can you send it to me now? Like, You just ruined everything else. How about, hey, would you mind sending me this because my CPA needs it by this date? Sorry to bug you on that. They're putting pressure on me. It would really help me out. Thanks. Hey, by the way, P.S., Do you want to go out for dinner sometime? Right? This is all in the pattern. Nobody teaches this stuff. You're getting this sort of included in the real estate investing course because... It's really important. Now this is an example right for the manual. Let's say a tenant calls you and says, you sent a vendor and they stepped on my petunias. My petunias are dead now. You suck landlord. The worst thing that you could do is respond with anxiety inducing statements which are any kind of statements that are either short and snippy and kind of imply an ego or that don't address the problem. That's why long introductory emails create anxiety, just like a response to this petunia problem might be like, I'm sorry if the handyman stepped on your petunias. Why don't you go buy some other ones? Super passive aggressive. Which flower? I didn't know you had petunias there. Who cares? She said she had petunias. (laughs) The better answer, and you can kind of read through some of the other examples here, but just so you can kind of hear me say it, the better way to do it is A, to express empathy. In this case, it is okay to express empathy first and then offer the solution because you got to get people back to a normal level. Before responding, rationalize. How much is it really going to cost to plant some new petunias? Suck it up and respond with something like, oh no, I'm so sorry the handyman that came was careless. I want to see to it that that gets taken care of. Which variety and which color of petunias did you have? I want to make sure that gets taken care of this week. These three things are so crucial as a template that you could just use in so much in life when you respond to people. I'm sorry, here's what I'm gonna do to solve it. Here's when I'm gonna do it. You'd be surprised how many people don't understand this stuff. Now, rule two is in general, and we kind of touched on this already, leave positive comments last. All the fluff comes last. Requests come first, then positive comments, unless you're giving empathy. If somebody writes you an email, and it's like this long email, hey, I reviewed the property management contract or I reviewed the lease agreement. This looks good. Wondering if we could change this, 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 blah, 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 blah. Hey, thanks so much. P.S. My mom died. The very, very first thing out of your mouth in the email reply should be, oh my gosh, I am so sorry that your mother passed away. Please let me know and then offer some kind of like, hey, do you need any help? Whatever, right? Then get into your content. So empathy request fluff. The second part about rule two though is make sure you put positive comments in what it is you're sending. Hey, good morning, Mr. Kevin. I was wondering if we could go tour some property a week from now. Thanks so much, Kevin. Whatever, right? We're two Kevins in that scenario that's vastly different from can we go look at some homes in two weeks okay like hold on chill out i am human it's all that little empathetic building you want to do as an investor this is that personality you want to build and create okay rule number three this is huge this is word choice words to say and not to say let's start with words never to put in emails or text messages need you Unless you're, you're offering help to that person, because usually when people say you, you're blaming. When you say need, you're demanding. Can we? I'm concerned. Stop being concerned. What's the frickin' problem? I'm beating around the bush. <laughs> I'm worried that this might happen, but concern, kind of, it's a little condescending, that's, that's a tough one, maybe that's more of a borderline one, but concern comes across a little condescending any time I ever see it used. Please let me know. Terrible. Ter- horrible. The word please today induces so much anxiety. Please used to be great when somebody with a top hat would hold a door open for a lady and then say something like, please. It was in the tone, but in text. Please is a demand, or worse, a sign of impatience. Be very careful with exclamation marks, unless it's positive. Stay away from multiple question marks. That sounds annoyed. The dot, dot, dot is really bad. Can you give me an update, dot, dot, dot? The dot, dot, dot grammatically means anything can be filled in here, but I left it out. So in other words, the client may have been saying, Can you give me an update, you jerkface? You know, maybe they didn't mean to do the dot dot dot, but just don't do the dot dot dot. As promised. Are are, are you looking for a pat on the back? Like, stop. Just do what it is that you said you were going to do, but don't look for like a self-promotion here. See. See attached. See, I told you so. Don't like that, call me. That's probably just a me thing, but honestly, call me? How about, about what? Like the worst is you get a voicemail, gosh, especially if you leave voicemails like this. Hey, it's Robert call me. Thanks. Bye. I would like to know about what so I could be prepared for the phone call. Oh, you're calling about a specific property. Oh, you have a problem with this. Like, how urgent is this? I need to know urgency status. I need to know what it's about. I don't want to just call. See, for professionals, it's nice because when I listen to a voicemail and somebody says, hey, Kevin, I got a question about some mildew I discovered in my house or there's a water leak. I know. Well, maybe I need to call, like, right away and I could step out of a meeting or just call in between appointments. But if somebody's like, hey, I just want to run some numbers," by you and kind of just review things, then I know, okay, I probably need about 45 minutes to set aside. So an expectation is nice. So just the blank call me is not so good. Then we have really positive words, which you should really start internalizing. They're on the list. I encourage you to check it out. Some quick samples. You should really internalize these phrases or things like Would you mind? Would you prefer? Is there any way we? Thanks so much, thanks very much. Great news. The word no is a little bit on the fence as well. How about negative or darn no? Better, softens. So there you have it. We have three hard and fast rules related to don't create anxiety in the people's lives around you if you want to get good deals and you want people to like you. Follow the rule of empathy, then request, then positivity or fluff, and don't use bad words. Check out the attachment, and I hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, me, Kevin here. I was hoping I would not see the day that I had to make this video for course members for at least 10 years. Unfortunately, the time may be now. It is once again time to talk about the macroeconomic cycle, the business cycle, the real estate cycle. And folks, this is how we are going to connect the psychology of money, the psychology of buying the dip, the broken sell button, to macroeconomic cycles. So that way you graduate to the next level of understanding personal finance and building your wealth. It is so critical to understand market cycles. And this video is not designed to encourage you to uh, change your strategies, to buy the dip or to sell. This video is designed to show you how to prepare for changing market cycles and to provide a reason for the confusion that can happen at different points in the cycle. But first, I want you to know that the very first thing that I did when I became a real estate agent during the last crash was I created a graphic for this right here. This is my graphic the real estate cycle. (laughs) And while looking back, there's so much more detail I could throw in this and there's so much more I could do. I wanna pay homage to the fact that when I entered in the bottom of the market, dealing with the disasters of short sales and foreclosures and seeing the pain of excess debt, which is a problem that we have in our country right now, I created this, and I actually printed it out uh, and I had uh, a a picture frame uh, with the real estate cycle, this, on it on, on a canvas, so it looked like a piece of art. And I would bring it with me when I was talking to buyers or sellers. And I would explain to them where I believed we were in the market cycle and why. I would use this as a tool for talking about uh, the fears of the double dip recession, uh, which uh, or the the shadow inventory of foreclosures that were coming up. The same thing that I do on YouTube now or in the programs is the same thing that I used to do in the coffee shop with clients, which is providing facts, data, and statistics to back up my points rather than just emotions, which we have to talk about emotions. Emotions are very, very important. So let me give a quick explanation of this. This is an oversimplified explanation of the real estate cycle. Essentially, the real estate cycle back in 2010, 2011, 2009, uh, was was clearly in in this area where we had experienced declining price, rent, and uh, new construction. We clearly had had noticed this. And what I would do on a daily basis is I would track inventory numbers. And what was fascinating was housing inventory in uh, the city that I live in went from about 400 Homes on the market, which is a massive amount. Normal market, by the way, has about 200 homes on the market. We went from about 450 homes on the market where somebody would come to me and say, Hey, I'm looking for a three bedroom, two bath in this particular part of town. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm like, Okay, here's your list of 20 of them. You know, we should probably narrow the list down to the top five that look good based on the pictures. (laughs) We don't have to go to 20 of them and get overwhelmed, right? It was crazy. It was really, really crazy times because there was so much. And, and people were always wondering, like, oh, but Kevin, I'm, I'm worried. What if prices go down more? And it's like, well, look at where we are in the real estate cycle. According to the real estate cycle, we pretty much are at the bottom, especially since what happened in 2010. Actually, we really working towards 2011. What started happening? We started seeing that housing inventory number towards the end of 2011, beginning of 2012, start rotating down. Fast, We went from 450 homes on the market to 300 homes on the market. Boom! Like that. We actually ended up at the beginning of 2013 with just 80 homes on the market, which was insane. We had this crazy, crazy uh, uh, shift in the market. But we could watch this happen week after week after week for about a year and a half, because the real estate market moves a little slower. And so we were clearly in the absorption of excess supply phase, where it's like, oh, so much supply, and all of a sudden that's dwindling. Uh, and so when uh, March and April of 2013 came around, we actually ended up seeing prices jump 20% in the matter of two months. But we saw that coming for a year and a half because of this absorption of excess supply, right? Okay, good. So supply started getting absorbed. We got into a tighter market. Uh, it became a lot easier to rent properties out, and then prices started skyrocketing. Uh, they they have increased very well over the past uh, probably well I would say from two thousand eleven to about two thousand nineteen. Prices uh, increased quite normally and, and substantially, but we've gone into this this more almost exponential phase. Let me use a little bit of a better graphic than using uh, just a circle here. We've kind of done a little bit of this with pricing where uh we hit our bottom here in 2011 started rotating up this right here is where you saw housing inventory go from about that uh 450 number to uh you know 200 well 300 200 right and then all the way down to 80. so we saw this it got so low we got to this point where folks were like oh my gosh How am I going to make money as a real estate agent? There's nothing to sell. Uh, And what happened? Prices jumped substantially, about 20%. And then we continued on. Real estate market relatively did this. But now, since the pandemic, we've really done this. Uh, And going back to the real estate cycle, usually when you get to this sort of euphoric uh, stage, this, this excessive runaway stage, uh, you tend to increase new construction as much as possible to to produce more homes for people where they want to live because the prices are so high, the margins are so good. This is why Lennar and KB Homes are killing it and they're producing more, more properties uh, or, 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 you know, building and planning new properties like crazy to bring these to the market. Uh, the, the, the issue then becomes twofold. What happens towards the top of the real estate market? Well, as the real estate market starts potentially peaking, interest rates tend to go up. Uh, to to quell excessive growth. And when rates go up, especially mortgage rates, Uh, we know that real estate prices can come down uh, about uh, 10x the interest rate increase. So, for example, if our market is expanding at, let's say, 10% per year, and interest rates go up 0.6% like they just did, then uh, we would see a negative 6% headwind to real estate prices, but a positive 10% momentum movement, right, Uh, of of prices going up. And so now we're net 4% growth. But that can also end negative if all of a sudden people are like, oh, prices aren't going up that much. Oh, it's getting, a little, it's getting a little expensive to go shopping again. Oh, the stock market's getting a little funky. Uh-oh, uh-oh, right? And all of a sudden, euphoria can very quickly turn into oversupply. And all it takes is a handful of investors who own a lot of properties to start flooding the market, and it can happen very, very quickly with properties, to start quickly dampening demand for housing. And all of it has to do with fear psychology. So we got to talk about that. See, fear psychology applies to the stock market as well. Generally, what we want to do is buy the dip, but we have to overlay cycles. If we look at the cycle, the best times obviously to buy the dip, and I told my clients this a lot, I would always draw a line here. I'm like, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna try to time the market, You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to be right down here in the middle. But ideally, Try to buy at the bottom half. <laughs> and usually the bottom half is, is uh, it, you know, we, we know when the bottom half is happening because we start seeing indicators decline at a less rapid pace where we start rotating. I think when pe- folks hear, oh my gosh, someone's trying to time the macro economy. The thought is you're perfectly trying to get out at the tippy top and perfectly trying to get out of the bottom. That's next to impossible, right? That, that's not gonna happen. Just like trying to predict what earnings are going to do, next to impossible. Just like trying to predict whether Bitcoin is going to be at 50000 next week or it's going to be at 20000 next week. Who freaking knows? Nobody knows on that short term. You could use technical analysis to help guide you, but we all know you could have breaks. that's breakups or breakdowns, right? Technicals could falter. So we, we don't know. We don't have a crystal ball, but we do know macroeconomic cycles and we know that things change. But Let's understand the psychology of what happens when things change. And this is critical. This is absolutely critical. And we're also gonna talk about uh, whether, whether you should actually do anything, okay? Hold on. Uh, we're gonna Google this thing. It's called the uh, sell Excel uh, image <laughs> for, for the stock market. And uh, this, this is quite, quite powerful. This is a pretty popular cartoon. And uh, here it is. So the psychology of markets is that when things are really doing well, every, everybody's buying, everybody's happy, and when we get our first dips, we're, we're, you know, we have little corrections in the market. Like, let me speak a little bit towards, towards example here. We have uh, the uh, pre-election dip, we have the February and May dip of 2021, the election dip of 2020, right? Those dips, these are things that we can buy the dip on and the reason we can buy the dip on this is because of the Federal Reserve blowing wind at our back and supporting us. We have an accommodative Congress, we have a, an accommodative Fed, and there are no massive red flags that indicate we're at the top of a cycle. Now, we'll talk more about being at potentially at the top of the cycle, but let's quickly understand psychology. And, and why do we feel emotional when, when things turn, right? Where does that emotion come from? So uh, this, this cartoon essentially starts out with, hey, I've got a stock here that could really excel. And somebody hears uh, excel. Oh, I wonder what could excel. You know, the curiosity. When somebody says something new, it creates sometimes shock or curiosity. Like, huh? What? They're doing what? Huh? That's, that's kind of this face here, uh, which in my opinion, uh, it would be an example of, let's say somebody who is regularly a long-term sort of buy-and-hodler, and then somebody sells, that, that creates a little bit of this, what? And, and so you get more folks paying attention. Excel, what? Oh, did I hear sell? Wait, what? Uh, what's going on over here? Sell. Uh, and then this is where, where first you get anger. Uh, you get confusion and anger of, of, of folks. Wait, wait, no, this is this is the opposite. And anytime you're in a cycle and a cycle changes, the macroeconomic cycle switches or changes and shifts, or with in a different position in it, emotions flare because it's different. Look, it is easy. I'll tell you, it is easy, 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 in 2011 to see why everybody didn't buy the dip. You know why everybody didn't buy the dip in 2011 on real estate? Because everybody thought real estate sucked. That's when you know, You're getting closer to the bottom of a macroeconomic cycle. When everybody is telling you, oh, you're in real estate, that sucks, man. That's a tough market. I would go to Trader Joe's, and the people at Trader Joe's are like, real estate, man, tough market, man. Now I go to Trader Joe's, you know what they tell me? Dude, man, bought a house a couple years ago, up 200 grand, man. I don't really have to work here anymore. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? (laughs) Okay. Those are indicators of changes in where we are in the cycle. I don't know that filming this here on January 28th, my 30th birthday, that we are with certainty at the top of an economic cycle, but we have red flags that indicate we might be due for the turn in the cycle. No guarantees. We could always have manipulation in the market. But if we are at the top of a macroeconomic cycle, the pain could be outsized and last for a very long time. i we're going to talk about time in just a moment. But first, uh, and we're going to talk about sort of risk benefit analysis as well. But first, let's go back to, to psychology here. So once, uh, when, the, when the first people start selling, you know, when, when people are selling when everybody's buying, they're just an idiot bear, right? When, when somebody who's usually a bull turns to a bear and you have a, an inflection point, there's a lot of emotion not only that uh, it, it comes from individuals watching uh, that person or paying attention to somebody, but there's also a lot of emotion that, that can come within that person. Like, for example, if, uh, if, if you change uh, directions because you start seeing massive... Uh, Five-year, two-year macroeconomic changes, and uh, you're concerned about a potential macroeconomic shift, then that's that's a point where you're. It's almost like you have to reprogram all of what you've been doing. If you're during the expansion cycle, let's let's go back to that real estate cycle. During that real estate expansion cycle, you're like your mentality is okay. Buy the dip on everything. Every fixer-upper that comes up, I'm a buy. No second thought. And you program yourself to being on this side of the cycle. When you're on this side of the cycle, the programming is, it's automatic. It's buy the dip, don't worry, long-term investing rules. Uh, we, we uh, you know, no matter what, it's, it's gonna end up uh, correcting uh, back to the upside. It'll be fine, sell-offs are normal, blah, 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 right? You are programmed to buy when you are on this side. Uh, especially, hopefully, when you're on the bottom half because you're in an expansionary cycle When you get to a peak or a potential peak, or you believe, and this is the tough part, you believe you're at a peak, you have to reprogram all of that. You go from, hey, let's get the private jet. Let's go spend the money in Cabo. Let's buy everything. Buy the dip, man. Fed's always here for us. That changes to, uh uh-oh, we got to start paying attention to these red flags because they're indicative of a potential top. No guarantees, but they could be indicative of a potential macro top, not a short-term top, not like, ah, things are selling off a little bit because of the election coming up or whatever, right? Ah, some data's bad, but don't worry. Uh, Those red flags aren't that bad, right? Whatever. Like, we get through that. Over here, it's not like real estate was straight up either. I know I drew it kind of straight up, but it had vacillations, you know? Whatever. Uh, Wasn't a big deal. The bigger issue is when you get confounding macro red flags. And we're going to talk about this again in just a second. Then why, again, do we have emotion here? We have emotion at the peak because now when you're at the potential peak, everything changes. The first thing that changes is you have to start programming into your own mind. Okay, look, I'm a big fan of guns and butter. I'm a gig, big fan of saving money, but now I got to ramp it up. Now I got to save even more. Now we're gonna cut from our discretionary spending even more. Now we're gonna double down and work harder and build more cash and build more wealth as soon as we can, just in case we do go into an extended bear market. See, folks miss this, and and this is what's so, so critical, okay? people like to say, oh, well, I'm a long run investor. I'm just investing for the long term. Look at the the S&P 500 over the long term. It's basically like this. All the little gyrations are this. That's fine. That's totally true. But a problem that we run into when we look at a line like this, so we end up extending a massive, you know, 80 year line like this and forgetting that Missing one year, worst case, in a worst case scenario, if you missed one year, and this was the normal line, let's say you missed the year right here, maybe your returns from having been the same path might be slightly under that, right? (laughs) If you sat out, for example, a year or six months, like how much is the NASDAQ or the S&P 500 really gonna go to all time new highs in 2022? Who knows? It could be a minus 1% year. It could be a plus 5% year. Okay, is, is that 5% worth the risk? And this is something you'd have to evaluate yourself, right? But anyway, what, what folks generally miss is not only evaluating your risk tolerance in the event that we are at the top of a cycle, uh, but the, the psychological pain of changing. So again, we are in, when we're in this part of the cycle, by the dip, by the dip, by the dip, everything's good, wind is at our back where in this part of the cycle, we everything we do changes. We become again, hoarders, buy the dippers, cash hoarders. Okay, now, before we keep going, we've, we've got to address this right here. Take a look at this, right? If you invested in the S&P 500 right here in 1973, I kid you not, it would have taken 20 years for you to break even. If you would have invested right here during the dot-com bubble, and maybe you even started buying the early dip, it would take you about 14 years to break even. So yeah, people like to draw these average charts where they just draw a line and they say, "Oh, long-run investing, long-run investing great, 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 always good." Yes, for the vast majority of folks, that is the easiest thing to do. But macroeconomic cycles do exist. And You've got to ask yourself if you think you are at a potential top in an economic cycle, is it worth just hodling maybe and not buying the dip because the first dip could just be the beginning of the dips, right? Look, look at the relative strength index, hop on over to the S&P 500. People use this technical indicator wrong all the time and it drives me nuts. You go over to the S&P 500. Look at the March of 2020 dip over here. Relative Strength Index right here. Uh, any anything under this line means we're uh, oversold. Anything above the uh, yellow line here means we're overbought. And so folks like to say, "Oh yeah, yeah, buy when the uh, when when the RSI is below 30. Uh, that's a sign that we're oversold." And right now, here January 28th, we're in the oversold territory. The S&P 500 is down like what 8% or whatever, right? Well, look at this, folks. The S&P was down eight <laughs> percent, ish, eight to ten percent, right here, and we were oversold according to the Relative Strength Index. The downside is it sold off another thirty percent in the month thereafter, <laughs> and the only reason—this is the scary part—the only reason—and this is also going to go back full circle to the red flags of our economic cycle. The only reason the market bottomed out was here on March 23rd, the Federal Reserve bailed us out. The Federal Reserve said they will bail us out. Now, I want to draw this on a real estate cycle with you. But first, I got to give you some examples here so you can believe this. Look at this. Stock market crashed in 1987. You might have heard of that famous Monday. Stock market crashed in 2000. And I'm going to write the bottoms here, okay? Uh, well, no, I'm not going to write the bottoms. So the stock market crashed in two thousand. Uh, stock market crashed in two thousand eight. Stock market crashed briefly, briefly in two thousand eighteen. Stock market crashed in twenty twenty. These are your stock market crashes of the last what is that? Thirty five years, okay? The stock market bottomed in eighty seven because the Federal Reserve came out and said, "Hey, we'll bail you out. Don't worry." This was the first time the Fed did that. The, uh, usually, it was Congress that would sort of have to bail markets out. This was really the first time. In 2000, dot-com bubble, massive euphoria. You know that Excel phase, uh, or, or, or I should say rather that bye-bye-bye-bye phase, uh, was was quite frantic. Uh, in the cartoon here, which I don't even think we. Gotten to that part of the cartoon yet, right? but uh, see how Excel becomes I can't take this madness anymore I'm leaving. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. 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 bye, bye right. This would be your confusion part of the market again Your bottom uh, and then bye 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 and then you get that euphoria again, right, which turns into a sell but anyway uh, Jump in over here You get the euphoria of the dot-com bubble <laughs> Jesus ridiculous the market bottoms in Q1 of 2003, why did it bottom out? Because the Fed came in with massive interest rate reductions. So Fed bailout and discussions of continued support, whatever, because there's pain. Interest rates started going up again after two, three years because things started getting excessive again in 2005 and six. But anyway, Fed bailout. 2008 market crashed. When did it bottom? It bottomed in exactly February of 2009. Why? Because even though in 2008, Congress authorized $700 billion of spending, it wasn't until February of 2009 that the Federal Reserve authorized $1 trillion of bailout money. And that's when the market bottomed. Federal Reserve on December 19th of 2018 said, hey, you know what? We're not gonna do three rate hikes next year. Instead, we're gonna do two. That was a U-turn in the Federal Reserve's tendencies, and that led the market to go up. Within, within a week, it started going up. It didn't go up quickly. It, it, it slowly bottomed and slowly started going back up. Important to keep in mind. In 2020, we bottomed out on March 23rd. Why did we bottom out? Because the Federal Reserve said, we will print an unlimited amount of money unlimited QE, right? So now what I want you to ask yourself is, if all of these years here are economic cycles, where are we in the Federal Reserve economic cycle right now? Well, let me ask you that. So let's draw, instead of the real estate cycle or the business cycle, let's draw the Federal Reserve cycle. This is the Federal Reserve cycle. Market crashes, market turns around. Folks, when does the market turn around uh, at the bottom? The market turns around at the bottom, when the Fed bails us out, that's when the market turns around at the bottom. This is when we start ticking back up slowly, and the Federal Reserve continues to accommodate the markets. This is an emotional spot because it's like, oh my gosh, we're getting bailed out. It's confusing. It's like, wait, does, does this mean buy? No, no, it's a false bottom. It's a double dip recession. Oh, no, 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 no. And you get people angry that other people are buying because it's like, no, it's a fake out. That emotion is really high at turning points. The, the most emotional times in investing are right there. That's when everybody's freaking out and mad at everybody else. It's also when mistakes are made in terms of, uh, you know, not not coming across potentially as crystal clear because, like, when we're, when we're on this turning point, it, it, it can happen so quickly that we're like, um, OK, wow, this was a really quick change. We gotta to adapt to this in a business cycle. Time to start cutting back, time to start saving money. You know, that's a quick change on families, and people can get mad and people can get upset. It's normal though, at these periods within a cycle. And so what what is the top? Well, historically, it's when the Fed tightens. Or begins to tighten. Uh, however, this has to be coupled with, and this is this is crystal clear. This is I shouldn't say crystal clear, this is critical. Fed tightens in exuberant market. See, the Federal Reserve talked about tightening in 2013 and started tightening in 2016. The market didn't crash. Why did the market not crash? Because everything was pretty chill. We were clearly uh, at, at more of this phase of the cycle, you know, 2013, Uh, 2016 was really over here. How did we know we were at these levels? Well, because we didn't have massive glaring red flags that would indicate we're in an exuberant market and uh, the Federal Reserve needs to tighten. The Federal Reserve was not saying in 2013 or 2016 that, oh, uh, valuations are excessively high. You know what they were saying? We need to keep making sure we accommodate the economy because we want this expansion to be broad-based and help people of different races and sexes and make sure that everybody can enjoy this economic recovery, which we're finally starting to see. So the Federal Reserve's tone was, hey, we, we still gotta accommodate. Yeah, we're gonna raise rates a little bit, but we still gotta accommodate. And that's why the market actually did well during those rate height cycles, right? Because the economy was not overly hot. What is the Federal Reserve telling us right now? They are, they're so clear about this. I don't understand why people don't understand this. They're telling us a few things. Number one, they're telling us they don't care about the stock market. That what they care about is inflation and maximum employment. So in other words, if prices go down, that's not our problem. That's not the Fed's problem is what they're saying. They're also telling us that what you have uh, is a situation of massive inflation with excessive valuations. They believe that excessive valuations lead to more risk in the economy. Why? Because excessive valuations ultimately mean that risk goes up. People take on more debt. Debt becomes more burdensome. If debt becomes more burdensome, uh, then the risk of bankruptcy goes up. And if that spreads throughout the entire economy, then it's entirely possible that the market could uh, not just correct, but crash and lead to the loss of faith in the United States dollar. And that is the most important thing that the Federal Reserve can try to preserve is the full faith and credit of the United States. So no, they don't care about the stock market to the extent that it doesn't affect uh, uh, jobs negatively. And quite frankly, so what if the market cracks? There's still plenty of time right now where people are like, oh, no, no, no. There's plenty of hiring going on. It doesn't really matter. The S&P's down 10%, oh, whatever, right? It doesn't matter. So the Fed tightens in exuberant markets. Right here, January 28th, 2022, <laughs> we have the Federal Reserve telling us valuations are excessive. Not only are valuations excessive, but... We don't care about the stock market. We care about getting inflation down. And see, that's the big red flag that we have right now is inflation was thought to get better in 2022 and the big U-turn, and I tell you, it comes fast. This is where people are like, oh my gosh, how do you change your mind so quickly? Oh, it's flip-flop this, Folks, when we got hit in the face with the minutes of the December meeting from the Federal Reserve, and we combined that with the latest data on inflation and earnings calls that inflation was getting worse, not better, and inflation was broadening, we know we have a massive red flag. And so the question is, when we have a massive red flag and the Federal Reserve is telling us this, how are we gonna get, how could we say we're here? How could we actually expect to go to higher valuations? We can't until the Fed U-turns. And so folks are wondering, Kevin, What are you doing right now in a macroeconomic cycle change? Well, we know the best thing to do in a larger change that could last years is obviously uh, to build cash by whatever means necessary and be prepared to buy over here. You can only buy the bottom when you have money. You cannot buy the bottom of the market. And I'm telling you, you can't even buy the bottom half of the market when you have no money. All the people who wanted to buy homes in 2010, who didn't build up cash during 2007 and the beginning of 2008, all those folks were not able to buy homes cheap because they potentially got wiped out. They didn't clean up their debt. They didn't reduce their spending. They didn't build cash. Now, the people who just bought and huddled, that's fine. For, I would say, 90 plus percent of investors, that's fine. If we draw an average of, of uh, stock prices, you're good. You sat through four or five years of pain or potentially more, depending on when you bought. You had to sit through that. But sure, as long as you got, as long as you were more exposed to the market than not, you did well. It's fine. Time corrects all sins. And so this is where you have to ask yourself, are you willing to bet? on your belief of the macroeconomic cycle. But if you're wrong, you got to get back in quickly. And so this is dangerous and risky. So you have to ask yourself what you want to put yourself through. What kind of stress do you want to put yourself through? Do you believe that the red flags indicate we are at the top of an economic cycle? If they are, there's no harm in taking profits and preparing even if that means having to take some losses. Like for example, let's say this is what your net worth did over the last, uh, you know, 10 years or whatever, and all of a sudden your net worth went down like 20%. And it's like, oh my gosh, but I don't wanna sell because I used to be here. Okay, well, if you believe the trajectory for the next five years is that, (laughs) <laughs> then then potentially if you could avoid that fall here and have more cash to buy, you could actually extrapolate your wealth more. Now, I want to be critically clear. This is all risky. And if you're wrong about timing the macroeconomic cycle, you got to make sure you get back on Train America. Otherwise, Train America is going to leave you behind. Now, I want to give you exactly what my thoughts are right now as of January 20th, 2020. First of all, I have no freaking idea when we are going to get a U-turn in inflation data, that is the red flag goes away, or Jerome Powell U-turns. I have no idea. But if we got a U-turn and that red flag went away, I need to get back in the market because I got to be long train America. I can't bet against train America my whole life. I will get left behind. I will get screwed selling uh, and, and not being in the market. You will get screwed being out of the market for the long term. But... But, 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 if you see massive red flags that indicate we are on a downward trajectory that is potentially likely to continue, then it is entirely appropriate to say, I believe we're at the top of an economic cycle. I'm going to sell. Even if I've already taken a little bit of a haircut, I'm going to wait on the sidelines until I get evidence that being at the top of the economic cycle is over. And potentially that is when there is actually blood on the streets when people are really freaking out, right? Uh, and that's when you buy. You don't have to be perfectly in the bottom. Remember, you don't have to time it perfectly. You just have to be the bottom half of the darn cycle. You don't wanna be in the top half of the cycle. And you gotta ask yourself, are we at the top half or are we at the bottom half? I <laughs> think it's pretty damn obvious where we are. Uh, but anyway, there's been a lot of question about uh, emotions involved in this. Uh, and the top and bottom are always emotional because we're changing directions, we're changing strategies. And when it comes to the, the psychology of money, no matter whether it's real estate or stocks, you've got to ask yourself, do I want to play the economic cycle or am I willing to potentially sit upside down for four or five years? You almost certainly will be positive again in the future, almost certainly. But are you willing to hold through that? And either way, you've got to determine, are, is is the risk of being out of the market worth it? Because when you get a turn, sometimes it can happen fast. Sometimes you can get a rebound very, very quickly. So keep that in mind. Uh, usually the turns uh, do take more time because people regularly think that they're just fake out rallies. So it, it, it takes quite a bit of time. I would say at least uh, in the stock market, uh, U-turns could take Quite frankly, six months—you're not going to get the best pricing as if you timed the market perfectly at the bottom. But, but uh, that's that's generally unrealistic. You just do your best and wait for U-turns in the macroeconomic cycle. So I hope this helps uh, on the macroeconomic cycle. And folks, we'll see you in the next one. Quick append: It's also worth noting that in Japan, you could have invested in the '90s and still not be break even. Uh, but I do want to just provide uh, thoughts. You've uh, on on resources. Like, how do you know uh, that the economic the the macro indicators are shifting? You got to pay attention to what actually moves markets. Right now, that's the Federal Reserve, but it doesn't always have to be the Federal Reserve. There are other things that can move markets. Uh, there are things that move markets short term, and there are things that move uh, markets long term. Short term would be more like your daily kind of news cycle. Oh, war here, or you know, geopolitical tensions here, saber rattling here, blah, blah 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 blah. Right? That that creates your sort of daily ups and downs, your daily fluctuations. Macro, you're usually looking at uh, indicators of GDP, indicators of recession, uh, the inverted yield curve. Uh, You're looking at what the Federal Reserve is doing. Are they blowing wind at your back or are they providing headwinds? Uh, Those are critical, uh, very, very critical. You don't want the yield curve to invert. Uh, That is the sign of the bond market pricing and the potential for a recession coming uh, as uh, short term bonds are more expensive or provide higher yields than long term bonds, which is bizarre. Uh, you you, um, you really got to pay attention to the Fed. You should become a student of the Federal Reserve. If you want to time macroeconomic cycles, you should be a student of the Federal Reserve. Absolutely critical. Uh, and uh, reading a lot about the Federal Reserve, studying prior crashes, huge. I think one of the things that they should do in schools is not teach like ancient history, like Egypt and stuff like that. They should teach Like, market history. (laughs) That would be the best history. Like, studying all the different crashes. Uh, But, like, in detail, you know? It's like, now we're doing Egypt. Now we're doing Iran. Why? Uh, You know, Persia or whatever. No, why? Mesopotamia. Come on, man. Teach something that's useful. Anyway, thank you.